If I pull at turn one, I am absolutely going to keep in hand until turn three, and I will start it at the end of turn two. I don't care about discarding to effects, cheating it, cycling it, whatever. I am not interested. I want that Black Joker out of my deck for the first three turns of the game. Hey guys, Craig here. We've got a special episode today. We've got Ray Flynn uh, taking questions from the audience in his um, inaugural Solo Tactica series. Uh, most of the questions are focused on hand management and card draw. Um, I guarantee you're going to learn something, so enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Ray here on the third floor, and today we have our inaugural episode of Solo Tactica, where I'll be answering your questions regarding Malifaux tactics, advice, and whatever else comes up that involves wargaming. Let's have a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about today. Today we're going to be talking about the Fate deck and your control hand. I got several questions regarding this topic. I want to spend a little bit of time on each of them. So we're going to jump right into it with our first question from Danny, who asks, what are some general tips on hand management? Now, I did go over this in our video on our YouTube channel. I'd like to touch on those points again for our floor heads who are podcast only. But if you do like videos, check out our YouTube channel for hand management. I think it's got some great content for you. Now, there are three aspects for hand management I like to focus on. The read, the bluff, and the play. Now, I don't want to go too deep into these because otherwise this podcast will be way too long. But for the read, when you first draw your hand and when you're looking at your cards, and I kind of do this primarily at the beginning of the turn, but I encourage you to do it throughout the turn as things change. Uh, you're checking your target numbers. You're checking what suits you need. You're evaluating what actions you may want to do and which ones you want to force through. Because you might pull a hand that's got a ton of moderates in it and no severes, but if your actual game plan for that turn doesn't really require you to have severes in hand to force anything through, sometimes that's an okay hand to have. Making sure that you meet all the target numbers that you're going to need to do. This is the type of stuff you're trying to look for. If you've got a summoner, you're checking to see if you need any suits in your hand or if you've got a stone for it. But these are all pieces of information that you really need to take into account when determining just what you're going to do with your hand in general. Now, the next stage of it is the bluff. It's referring to not giving away any information during the turn. Because if you pick up your hand of six cards for the turn and you sigh or, you know, you make a noise or you roll your eyes, you're like, well, I guess I'm going to stone cards for this hand. You know, you're giving your opponent information. You're giving them power because now they know that there's something wrong with your hand, whatever that might be. Like, the goal here is that you're trying to make sure that you're not giving your opponent power over what they're going to decide to do on their turn just based off of your reactions to your hand. Try not to take any less or more time when deciding to cheat. There's you know, there's some conversations had regarding the mind games of whether or not you hold off cheating for a little bit or you really gauge it when all you got is like a two in your hand. But 
In Malifaux, I, I think it's unnecessary because there's just so much information in Malifaux to process on both sides of the table. I just feel like try to keep it simple. Try to keep your head in the game. Just try to keep composed. If you take 10 to 15 seconds to cheat every single time, that means whenever you go to cheat, your opponent's never going to know, you know what you're thinking about. They're just going to know you're considering like you always do. Just play the game. Just play your game. Which brings us to the last part of this, the play. The play is probably the most complicated aspect of this whole thing. The bluff aspect, especially if you're playing in casual, doesn't matter as much. But your play is the actualization of your read. So it doesn't matter if you have a good read if you don't know how to play the hand properly. This boils down to a couple of points, but most importantly, it's when do you cheat? When do you use those cards? When are you going to discard those cards for effects? Evaluating if the duel matters is probably the primary thing you need to do here. And what I mean by that is, is what are you trying to accomplish in that duel? If what you're trying to do is save a model that it doesn't matter if it dies, then that's not necessarily the time you want to be cheating, especially if it's like the first swing. If it's the first swing and your opponent's going to second swing and you are looking to try to save and like you're cheating first, which is like the, it's all stacked against you now, it probably doesn't behoove you to cheat because unless you're trying to eat up that model's activation and that really actually matters, like it's going to deny them a point or something like that, it's just not what you want to be trying to do with those cards. You could use it to try to force through something that actually gets you points. And that's kind of the ultimate gatekeeper question. Does it score you points? If it's not a high value situation, why are you using a high value card? For now, we're going to cap it at that. Just as a, a quick run, but through again, you're doing your read, check your target numbers, check your suits, evaluate what actions you may want to do and which ones you may want to force through. You got the bluff. Don't give away information. Don't do uh don't become subject to tells. And then the play, determine when you need to cheat by evaluating if the duel matters and does it score you points. And those are some general tips on hand management. Coming up next, we're going to continue talking about the in-game plays by tackling a couple of questions about what to do involving jokers and about a couple of other tactical concepts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. 
up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. All right, welcome back, everybody. Jesse offered up a great question for me to field this episode. He's a local, he's a really good player, and he already knows the answer to this one, but it's a great one to cover, and that is when should you consider cheating the Red Joker? Ultimately, this is a fairly complex question when you're at the table, but my initial response is as soon as you can. I don't mean waste the Red Joker when I say as soon as you can. What I'm, You want value out of it, obviously. It's a 14, it's any suit... Um, it's a severe plus one for your damage duel, so like you need to evaluate where it's going to go. But holding the Red Joker in your hand means it's not circulating in your deck. Cheating the Red Joker from your hand doesn't prevent your opponent from cheating. So if they happen to have that unfortunate situation where they also have the Red Joker, you can get very little value out of that sometimes. The big thing is, is you don't have it in your deck, it can't possibly come up. The less times you're able to use it. So just a simple example, let's say you have the Red Joker in your hand turn one, and you'd only use it till turn three. Well, that means that there was statistically two times in turns one and turns two, you may have flipped that Red Joker and gotten some good value out of it that you didn't because you held it on until turn three. I really feel like using it each turn when you pull it is, is something you really want to try for. Now, not always. But that goes back to the read. If you have a duel, you gotta get off, and you're either dealing with a stat inequity or you're needing to beat your opponent's value, then maybe it's worth hanging on to it for a turn. That's what you need to do to figure out when you're gonna be cheating, is you gotta do that read and you gotta analyze the play state. And you gotta do it fairly regularly. Like you might do a read and be like, hey, yeah, this is exactly what I wanna do, is I wanna hold this until turn three to, you know, nuke a writer's uh, capabilities. But maybe the board state changes completely and you have the opportunity to like delete the rider if you cheat the Red Joker in for damage or something. Constantly reevaluating your plan, reevaluating the cards in your hand are super, super important for determining any duel, any cheating, but specifically for trying to get that value out of the Red Joker. Max value for me, I prefer to cheat the Red Joker to force an attack to fail or to guarantee a non-damaging ability goes off. Now on the flip side, yeah, I said it on the flip side. We have the Black Joker. Now, Francois asks, when should I cheat the Black Joker rather than discarding it? Now, Francois was particularly asking in regards to abilities like showboating. Um, know the Warrior and War Eternal Trigger provide similar situations where cheating during the duel in uh, Know the Warrior, it's cheating when you're focused. War Eternal, it's cheating the damage flip. Both of those generate a card draw for doing so, so it's a cycle effect. And so the thought process is, is if you have cycle effects or something of that nature, when do you use the Black Joker to cycle for a better card, and when do you just keep it in hand? Or do you pitch at the end of the turn, or what have you? Again, in general, if I pull a Joker, or a Black Joker, I keep it in hand for at least one to two turns. Sometimes longer, very rarely, but sometimes. If I pull it turn one, I am absolutely going to keep in hand until turn three, and I will start it at the end of turn two. I don't care about discarding to effects, cheating it, cycling it, whatever. I am not interested. I want that Black Joker out of my deck for the first three turns of the game. Now, the reason is, 
is because especially in tournament play, those three turns are absolutely critical for setting up your scoring potential. And an untimely black joker, whether we like it or not, swings games, period. If it is pulled in turn two, I'll pitch at the end of turn two. Now, if it's pulled at turn three, I'm going to do the read, and then I'm going to check the game state, and I'm going to check to see how much time I have left. If it's going to go five rounds, it's probably in my hand until the end of turn four, because you pulled a turn three, and you can guarantee you don't see a black joker for the last three turns of the game. Now, some crews can definitely cycle cards fast enough or well enough that it's not a big problem. And in those cases, generally, I will still pretty much default to what I just said. Um, whether it's Rida, Lynch, uh, the Shadow Emissary with its bonus action, Molly with her uh, Lost Knowledge, I think it's called, the Zip and his entire keyword, it doesn't really matter. The ability to draw and or cycle a ton of cards doesn't, doesn't make up for the random chance that you're one card off when you're doing all that manipulation and then you still top deck a Black Joker on a critical flip. The only time I would remotely consider getting rid of a Black Joker earlier is if it will score me points. I will very often cite this. It's going to become a mantra, does it score you points? Because a lot of my decision making revolves around that. Should I move this model here? Well, is it going to eventually score me points? Should I kill this opponent's model here? Well, I don't know. Is it going to score me points? You know, and same thing here. Do I get rid of a black joker early? Well, I don't know. Does it score me points? If I'm doing reckoning and I have a 13 in hand and a black joker in hand and I need to flurry to get that reckoning point, I will absolutely pitch that black joker because uh, assuming the flurry is going to get me the point. So like, you know, the min damage from the flurry is going to do the job. But again, if it's scoring victory points, it's always worth at least the consideration. But other than that, go to your read. Correctly identifying what you're trying to accomplish that turn is the best way to evaluate the Black Joker's place in that. Alright, let's take a quick break, and then we'll continue with some card play questions. Howdy friends, here on the third floor, you'll find us playing Malifaux and other games on Mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet-erase marker compatible, and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size, pick a design, then choose an overlay like the one for Marvel Crisis Protocol or Malifaux 3rd Edition. It will speed up deployment and the placement of strategy and objective markers. If you're going to Adepticon this year, be sure to check out the Mats by Mars booth. Until the end of March 2020, you can use the new promo code Third Floor 320. That's Third Floor 320 to get a 10% discount on your next order. In the notes, you can ask for the Third Floor logo to be put on your mat for free. Again, use the promo code Third Floor 320 to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. Welcome back, and we're still talking about in-game plays. So James asks, how do you evaluate a self-discard mechanic if it's later in the turn or you only have good cards left? To answer your question, James, this can be kind of hard to gauge about when do you, what do you do when you have discard costs and quote-unquote good cards, but let's say Assassinate is in the pool, and the next hit's going to be guaranteed to take your master below half. 
take the hit in this case, which is a discard effect, is going to be really strong value even if you've got to put a 10 or 11 down for it. Because if you've got a 13, your stat 6, your opponent's stat 5, you can probably just keep the hit on your master. It's a little risky because they have that red joker. But statistically speaking, you can kind of force through a defense. But generally, if you can't force a defense there, pitching the card is the right call, even if it's a high-value card, even on a 12 even. Like, if you're stat 5 and your opponent's stat 6, I mean, even a 13 may not save you. So in that case, I might even pitch a 13 to take the hit there. It's about evaluating that board state and trying to figure out what is getting rid of this high-value card actually accomplishing for me? Like, I probably won't discard a 13 to Juggernaut and then pray I flip, you know, another Severe to get the 4 health, for instance. But I will discard high ma- high Moderates to Juggernaut. But that's generally something I'm using as an end- towards the end of the turn just to get them back in my deck. So if you end up in a situation where you've got a couple of Moderates in hand and you're getting towards the end of the turn, I absolutely encourage, even if it's a 10, go ahead and pitch it to an effect that you have because you're trying to get it back in your deck anyway so that you're not on that bad decision of do I keep this card moving to the next turn and now I'm drawing one less card or you're having to discard the card and discarding a 9 or a 10 still feels bad regardless of whether or not it's the correct decision, it does feel bad to do. Another kind of extreme example, let's say you've got three severes in hand and you want a flurry again. Well, you may still have to cheat another severe just to hit because, you know, the flurry could always flip weak. Especially if you've got three severes in him, your deck might have already been flipping hot. So unless the possibility of dropping those two severes is going to score you a point, I say you don't flurry in that case. I say you keep those cards in your hand. Good cards are only good cards if they're performing a function. And if they're just sitting in your hand doing nothing, they're not good cards, they're just cards. So that's where I would say, that's how you evaluate a self-discard mechanic, is that if the card is not going to be used for something, that, or it can't be used to help you score points, then it's a card that can get discarded for an effect. Um, if you have a hard-to-kill model that's valuable, and they have Juggernaut, and you've got a 13 in hand, I absolutely consider pitching that 13 to get above the hard-to-kill barrier. Just in case you don't get to go first, it, it gives you another lifeline to get an activation out of that model because AP wins games, so losing AP is bad. <laughs> um, I know that's really, really common sense, but it's amazing how hard it is to lose sight of that sometimes where you're just rolling up and you're like, yeah, it's okay if this guy dies. And then you're like, well, I actually don't have enough AP to complete the game. Remember, if you lose a model turn one, you've lost eight AP, eight AP over the course of that game. So it's just things to keep in mind. Another question for play, and then we'll move on to some other things. How do you change your play style if your opponent can or does have lots of hand drain mechanics? Well, meta knowledge helps a lot here. Like, Guild, for instance, has quite a number of ways to attack your hand, and knowing where those are can help you prepare. But as a general rule of thumb, if your opponent can crush your hand, like a Yoku can, you need to evaluate how to get things done without needing target numbers. That means picking schemes that just need interacts, or schemes that only require positioning, or taking models that don't require high target numbers to get their abilities off, stuff like that. So that kind of comes almost into a pregame kind of setup where it's like someone went, oh yeah, I'm going to play Yoko. And you're like, oh great, my hand is in danger. So, or someone plays Zoraida and they're like, and you know they're going to just like, you know, at the most unopportune time cycle your entire hand. Well, it just means that you need to adjust the fact that you can't rely on your hand as the aid that it normally is. 
So you shouldn't invest as much effort into sculpting that hand, which, you know, so don't stone for cars type thing. Uh, it also increases the value, obviously, of your top deck in so far as that it's where you're going to be doing a lot of your plays off, especially if your opponent has, you know, has focused on hand destruction. Um, I think Sonya is, is a keyword that can really just wreck your hand in like two, three activations and suddenly you're out of cards. Playing off that top deck can absolutely be hair raising. But again, it's still business as usual, though. You got to do your read, mind the bluff, make the play. Focus comes in very handy. Built-in positives come in very handy uh, because you're already hoping for good flips anyway, so you, you might just try to hedge your bets a little bit. If you're walking into the situation blind or you don't have the meta knowledge and you've just kind of built your crew and you're on the table and suddenly you realize, oh God, my opponent does hand destruction, um, things to note, first of all, like I said a minute, a second ago, remember to be careful when stunning for cards. Crews that attack your hand don't tend to purge it in one activation, but you want to be careful nonetheless. Like, legitimately, there's a couple of abilities that have costs, discard costs associated with them that are aggressive, execute being the big fear here. So make sure you're aware of where those models are. Mitigating those models with your good cards before your hand gets destroyed might be necessary. So it's like drawing severes is not the end all that, be, that is all when your opponent's going to try to attack your hand. It just means that those severes have more value earlier in the turn before your, your opponent has a chance to get it off. Challenge is another thing to watch out for because it completely shut down your ability to do what you need to do to score points. So make sure you just kind of know what effects the opponents have that add those costs to you of discarding cards. Adjust as needed. That might be meaning you need to focus down the execute model super quick and that might mean you do stone for cards at the beginning of the turn because you're going to cheat for initiative and then use all your severes to try to get those models down or at least position them away that they're not a threat anymore. So it's stuff like that. When you're working off the top of your deck because of hand destruction, it's no different than if you're working off the top of your deck because you didn't draw a good hand or because you used your cards already earlier in the turn. You still have to get the business done. So just take a little bit of extra time to evaluate what you can do that doesn't require duels. If you're not doing stuff that requires duels or you're doing duels with extremely low target numbers, not having a hand doesn't really matter. We're going to take another quick break and then we'll come back and hit some pregame and mental math. Hi, I'm Alexander Zdanchuk from Riga, Latvia, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. Those guys open the beauty of Malifaux 3rd Edition to me and continue to provide tons of great content. You can support them too. Follow the links in the show notes below or search for Third Floor Wars at patreon.com. So how much are three or four of these episodes worth to you a month? Third Floor Wars has a Patreon, and if you think they're worth a dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars a month, swing by and become a patron. We have polls to decide the next episode of the pod, along with early releases of articles and podcasts. Everything we release goes out to everyone, but sometimes our patrons get a head start. The link is in the show notes, or just search for Third Floor Wars on Patreon.com. Thanks for the support. Wow, did we get an influx of patrons. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Florian, Carl Lee, Jeff Mansker, Nathan Linder, Maximilian, Vers, Carlton Oldham, Roman Heckenberger, Astra Cry, Tomas, Anthony Dudden, Klaas, Jonathan Clark, Paul Mason, Atticus Porter, Michael Pace, Rufus, 
Zach Rogan, Ola Sten, and Joss Gadja. Thanks so much. All right, we're back, and I have some strong questions to answer coming up next. Should I have card draw mechanics in all my crews? Furthermore, how valuable is card draw? And should you be stoning or cheating for search triggers and the like? So let's start off with saying that card draw is not the be-all that ends all in Malifo. I repeat, card draw is not the be-all that ends all in Malifo. Is it strong? Absolutely. But if you never draw a card during a game, it's fine. Stick to the read. Learning how to manage your hand helps remove the need of card draw. Remember, most keywords in the game don't have exorbitant amounts of card draw, so it's not ever going to be a requirement. Now, hand sculpting is something I personally like to do, but I only do it in keywords that are already geared towards that. I'm not trying to force the issue. So like Lynch is a great example of a hand sculpting master. Or even Lucius, even though he does tend to use his cards a lot, he also draws a ton of cards, so you're gonna see a bunch of cards cycling through your hand, and making the correct choices of when to cheat what is gonna be really important. But again, there are plenty of crews out there that don't draw a single card outside of their initial six, or seven if you're cheating Arcanists, plus whatever they stone for. And that's totally fine. If you find yourself struggling a bit to manage your hand, maybe try including a source of card draw, or two. You might find having access to seeing a few more cards in your hand over a game helps you manage them better. Maybe a few extra stones for stoning for cards. With that being said, two things I can't stress enough. Stoning for cards is an aid. It doesn't generate value. Card draw is an aid. It doesn't generate value. It simply allows you more choices. You still have to generate the value by making good play decisions. As to Surge, I will cheat a Surge to cycle cards sometimes, like if it's a low tome, and uh, I'll cheat a low tome to be able to just see an extra card, but I'm never gonna stone for it. Stones are too valuable, unless you're swimming in stones, looking at you Prospector and Soulstone Miner. That stone is better served for modifying duels, keeping henches and masters alive, or stoning for cards next turn. Now Dave asks, is there any quick tips for estimating expected chance to hit something, and how hard? So, back in M2E, someone crunched the math, I don't remember who it is, I apologize, um, and they came out with that a positive flip statistically adds one to your respective value. What I mean by that is like flipping a bunch of cards if you flip through your deck, on average, Flipping with a positive has the same feel as flipping at one stat higher with a single card. Now, obviously, your top end is truncated. If you're a stat 6, you can get up to you know, 19 or 20. If you're a stat 5, you're only going to be able to get up to an 18 or 19. But, and this is a point I feel needs to be made, for, especially for newer players, top end only matters if you're trying to force it through. As long as you're beating your opponent, you're beating them. Yes, accuracy matters, I know, but the point remains. A 5 will win your duel, even if they flip the 7 if you're 2 points higher. So, stat matters a lot, but card number doesn't matter as much as people weigh it as. And I find like when people are talking about uh, tactics and what they're doing, they're kind of automatically assuming they're going to flip like the magical 13-13, you know, dance. And 
That's not always going to be the case, but that's fine because you don't always need that. A lot of abilities, especially ones with low target numbers that are tacticals, don't need anywhere near that. And you don't want to see that 13 coming through. So just something to keep in mind there. High cards only matter for forcing stuff through or for summoning. So when you're talking about statistically in a vacuum where like both players don't have cards in their hand, positive flip is king because it helps make up for some of the lack of a stat that you might have or give you a push over the edge for the stats statistically. And it doesn't require you to have a card in your hand to be able to, to force the issue. It just, you know, you're just improving your chances. Counting cards, probably the best way to get this feel, um, but I don't count cards and I get on just fine. Thumb through your graveyard once in a while, take stock of the number of severes. You don't have to math out the percentages. I think that's what people look for when they ask a question like this is like, how can you quickly estimate an approximation, like a 50% or a 66% chance? Um, I don't think you need to go that far. But knowing that you flipped 30 cards into your discard pile and there's only one severe there means you've got a pretty stacked deck remaining. So while you may not know the percentage of your draw, you can safely assume that your next several duels have a pretty strong chance of being severe. So keep an eye on things like that. You can check, you can't check your opponent's discard, but you can make a mental note when they lose a 13, especially if you have one in your hand. Now, none of this guarantees anything because obviously positives can still flip double weeks, negatives can still flip double severes, and your opponent could be clutching a red joker or they could flip one. You could flip a black joker. But just kind of keeping an eye on the flow of severes out of each deck is a fairly quick and not too intensive way of being able to kind of weigh the odds. In regards to damage though, I kind of always make my plans around hitting min damage. The flipping you know, severes on negatives and getting that severe through happens way more than you would think it should, but I always like to take worst case scenarios because then when I'm planning around my AP expenditures, if I'm able to flip hot or get a straight on damage because my opponent can't or won't cheat or ideal moderate or whatever, you're just freeing up AP, AP that you were planning to spend anyways, but now it gives you a little bit of a buffer, it gives you a little bit of a safety zone, but your plan should have already included the fact that you may have flipped minimum damage. If you don't plan for the flipping weeks and then you flip nothing but weeks, it really throws your plan off. And a note on red and black joker fishing, if you've not seen the black joker, putting your dudes on positives and putting your opponent on more than one negative works against you. Like, yes, you want them on a negative so they can't cheat if they have cards in their hand. And having them flip additional negatives is just helping them fish for the red joker. Likewise, uh, if you flipped your red joker, there's no reason for you to keep wasting positives, again, unless there's no cards in your hand. But trying to get to a positive flip on your damage doesn't matter. Just go to a straight because you've already flipped your red joker. So just take your card and go. Another tap on this, especially careful if you haven't seen your black joker. Be very, very, very careful about your opponent putting you on triple negatives because they're black joker fishing you. All right, so I think that's a lot of information we've covered today. We're going to take one more break, and then I'm going to ease this episode out with a couple of etiquette questions. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. 
It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. So last two questions we have for today. Matthias, Matthias, I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing your name, I'm sure. But he asks, do you sleeve up your deck or do you leave it bare? So I actually have a fairly strong opinion about this. I don't really enforce it on others because it's it's not this kind of game. But generally speaking, I say sleeve. Sleeve, 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 sleeve. So the reason for this is competitive card gaming. So I come from a pretty heavy Magic the Gathering background. And all competitive card gaming nowadays pretty much does this, where you have to play with unmarked, no artwork, sleeved cards whenever you bring a a deck to a tournament. Why? It's because if your cards get marked or damaged or otherwise have noticeable variations to their card backs, you can see that. So when you see that card on top of your deck that has the big scratch in the upper left corner and you happen to remember, oh, that's my 12 of masks, you've, you've gained an unfair advantage, basically. Now, poker is a different thing entirely. I know people are talking are going to say poker decks and plastic cards. And yes, poker is different entirely because they use plastic cards. Some of our decks are plastic cards, too. But you also have to remember, they're cycling decks, and their decks are being handled by a dealer who's impartial. So even if he notices from the same deck he's used a bajillion times that nick on the corner, it doesn't matter for him because he doesn't affect the game state at all. But in Malifaux, we are the gatekeepers. So protect your cards, eliminate the possibility of accidentally cheating by knowing what's next, sleeve your cards. That's where I'm standing. I will die on that hill. And then last but certainly not least, we have Colton asking, when playing, either casually or competitively, are there any sour feelings towards yourself or your opponent counting cards? So I've heard some back and forth on this. So I'm going to try to set the record. Counting cards is a skill and a tool. It's as much a skill as learning to be able to estimate range without having to measure or memorizing information on opponent's crews so that you don't have to wonder what their models do. Some people can just do these things. Some people can't. We have a great player in our meta, just as an example, who can count cards. And he basically does so without even needing to think about it. It's an instinctual thing. It doesn't mean he's unbeatable by any means. He's a great player. That's what makes him great at the game, not his ability to count cards. He said something that I think is very valuable to this conversation, and that is being able to navigate a bad hand is a far more important skill than counting cards. It's We have to treat it like a skill. It's not... It's not someone having an, un, an unfair advantage because they're able to use the mind they haven't had ahead of them. That's like saying someone who's brilliant at tactics has an unfair advantage. Well, of course they have, an, they have an unfair advantage. They're brilliant at tactics. But it's a skill. It's a learned skill. They can still make mistakes. They're still fallible. You can still beat people who are really good at tactics by not making any mistakes and capitalizing on theirs. So, And I think that's kind of the thing. It's like we're not trying to create a completely level playing field where everyone has the exact same skill level. That's not what a competitive game is about. A competitive game is about pushing your skill level as high as it can go and meeting other people who are doing the same thing. So I think it's kind of like it's a bad dance to get sour over the notion. Now, we're going to, because we're gamers and we're playing a hyper-competitive game, there's going to be salt. But I'm here to say as a community, let's try not to, especially in the realm of the whole counting card argument, because this game is deep enough 
And knowing every card your opponent has flipped is just knowledge. It's just knowledge to help you make a decision. I mean, hell, if your opponent never even does another duel or only does a couple more duels after that, that knowledge doesn't even matter. So don't hate the player, just get good at the game. Step your skill level up in a different area that they don't have to try to match it. Or talk to them. You know, if it's someone in your meta, but hey, I know you count cards. I don't want to get salty about it, so I'd like to learn how to count cards too. You'd be surprised how easy it is to do things when repetition is involved. And if you're playing multiple games of Malifaux every week and are learning tips and tricks on how to do things, you can add that skill to your repertoire as well. So, that's a wrap. First episode of Solo Tactica in the books. Standard plug time, guys. To catch more Third Floor Wars content, please check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, our website, thirdfloorwars.com. If you like this podcast, consider subscribing to our Patreon. You get early access to our content, and then, like, kind of a direct line to us. You guys can always message us on Patreon, and we're pretty quick to come back and talk to you guys. We have more things planned. We're in kind of a transitional period right now where I'm doing some website shenanigans. So... Let us know if you have any questions. You're always feel free to email us, us up on Patreon, Twitter, what have you. Also, if you have any questions you would like answered on Solo Tactica, email them to tabletoptalk at thirdfloorwars.com or hit us up on Facebook, Twitter with the hashtag Solo Tactica and we'll add those questions to our bank that I will be drawing from for each episode. Hope you all enjoyed and we'll catch you next time on The Third Floor. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes.